This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Eric, how are you? Great, Ward. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. It's been a few weeks since we've done a history episode, and uh, this one is a good one. So why don't we introduce our guest? Sounds good. I agree. This is a really interesting topic and a wonderful guest. First to the topic, uh, it was 60 years ago this April that a young, dynamic, new U.S. president was at the helm. He was charismatic, he was telegenic, and he and the First Lady, they were like the shining symbols of this new decade, and, uh, a new generation in charge. But barely three months into his presidency, John F. Kennedy found himself embroiled in the fiasco that was the bungled Bay of Pigs operation. Commemorating this on the 60th anniversary, we have here an article in the current issue, the April issue of Naval History, by just the right kind of person to look at this for us. And that's the esteemed Dr. Norman Friedman, prolific Naval historian and author. Um, more books than you could list in a month of Sundays. Uh, one of which, of course, relevant to this, was he wrote The 50-Year War, um, a history of the Cold War that the Naval Institute Press published. It's a great definitive volume on the Cold War. And Norman has covered the Bay of Pigs operation for us uh, with a naval uh, perspective. And we're glad to welcome him here today. Norman, how have you been? It's been quite a while. Thank you very much. And very good talking with you. When you look back at the Bay of Pigs, there are two ways to look at it. One is the actual operation and why it failed. The other is the context. For example, it turns out that during the debate with uh, Richard Nixon, Kennedy kept talking about how we had to be more active in dealing with uh, the communist power growing up in the Caribbean, which was Fidel Castro. Nixon kept saying that we should be more cautious. And the irony was that as he was saying that, the government was working on plans to overthrow Castro, which ended up as the Bay of Pigs. When Kennedy came into power, the plan to attack Cuba was already well-formed. The attacking force was already trained to the point where it would be difficult for them to be held back much longer. And that was an important consideration. The plans were changed late in the day. The uh, landing site was moved, and no one really talked to the uh, Joint Chiefs about how wise that was or was not. That was an early indication of a style within the administration of discounting professional military advice. Discounting is probably too weak a word. You see that in the way that uh, Secretary of Defense McNamara handled professional military. There was an attitude that they were fools, 
that they were careerists trying to build their services beyond any kind of reasonable amount, that those in the administration, who were many of them academics, civilian life, knew far better. And in that sense, the Bay of Pigs was an unfortunate indicator of what was coming. So JFK inherited this plan from the previous administration, and he would have been well within his rights just to not go ahead with it. Isn't that correct? I think that they they had to either give up or go ahead. The, The legality of it was different, but I think when you train up an army and you tell them that they're about to go and you keep them in their training camps, it's very difficult to hold off action. They could have tried to disband the rebels, and that would have raised a very unfortunate stink. Or they could go ahead in some form. I suspect that they weren't able to just stop. So what what was the plan, roughly? The plan was to, to land people at a beach in Cuba. I think the idea was that once they were ashore, they would melt into the countryside and form a rebel army, which would eventually march on Havana. So when we say people, we mean Cuban rebels who'd fled the country and now were reconstituted to go back and try to overthrow Castro. Who else was in company? The the whole idea was that people had been fleeing Cuba for a while. There were plenty of exiles who were angry about what Castro was doing. And they some of them formed this uh, uh, army, which was going to march in. But to make it work, they had to be able to land and constitute themselves before they got into the interior of Cuba. I was watching Godfather 2 last night, ironically, and they have that scene where Michael and Fredo and Hyman Roth are in uh, Havana. And and uh, oh, right. remember the president's like, I, my position has become untenable. We've lost... Gitmo, and and so, good luck. He actually says it to him, good luck. And they all start running out of well, the place. Well, it's funny. They, they actually hadn't lost Guantanamo Bay. We're still there. The position in Havana became untenable because one of Castro's key initiatives was to clean up Havana. Cleaning up meaning throwing out uh, the Americans. He seized the hotels. He threw out the gambling Havana was a sort of playground for Americans, uh, largely run by the mob. I forget whose idea it was. And there was a sense in Cuba that it was the symbol of exploitation. JFK gets some advice going into this from a couple of different fronts. What were, what were some of the uh, icons who, who advised him either to go for it or to not do it? I'm not so sure who told him to go for it. The, the key point was when his, his UN ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, told him that there couldn't be any overt American involvement. And the plan really was that in the event they ran into opposition, the fleet offshore would clean it up. It was Kennedy who decided that the fleet would not act. And there, there's plenty of testimony from naval people offshore that they were expecting to operate and were told to stand down. That was really the most important advice he got. If you look at Kennedy's career later, what you see is a lot of dithering. 
crises that were allowed to build far beyond where they had to, after which he uh, desperately had to back off. You see that in Berlin. You see that in the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's a kind of uh, a naive idea of what's going on, which is very scary to watch as a historian. What did Eisenhower tell him? Eisenhower came later. After the operation, after the failure, Kennedy talked to Eisenhower about it. And he explained that uh, he had withdrawn uh, naval support because he was afraid that it would show uh, that the United States was involved. And Eisenhower said, you're fooling yourself. Uh, anytime something like this happens, it will be assumed that it's in the United States. And if we don't do anything, it'll just look as, as though we're too weak to, to operate. There'll never be a question but that it was American involvement. That's why you go all the way. The, the disaster comes when you fail. When you fail, it gives a sense of weakness and you'll be pushed everywhere else. So obviously JFK did not heed that advice. He didn't understand it. Forget heeding. He didn't understand what he had. And you see that several times. There's a, a summit afterwards. And he talks to Khrushchev and he says, look, we're men of the world. Both of us have overwhelming nuclear firepower, blah, blah, blah. Well, he didn't get it because we had overwhelming nuclear firepower. The Russians didn't. Their missile systems were not yet very effective. So when Khrushchev heard him say that, what Khrushchev immediately concluded was that Kennedy didn't know what he was doing and that he was essentially weak. And that contributed to the next crisis. Kennedy seems not to have been able to learn what was going on. There are numerous examples of this, which are amazing. At some point during the missile crisis, the president turns to an aide and says, this is outrageous, the Russians putting missiles in Cuba. This is as though we had put missiles in Turkey pointing at Russia. Well, yeah, that's what we had done. And that says that, that he literally didn't understand. He was not capable of following detail, even very important detail. That's a rather serious problem. So when you look back on the Bay of Pigs, it looks like it was a snake bit operation from the get-go. He First off, they have to move the landing location, which is right away is the kiss of death, arguably. Then he's got the second right. fleet offshore, ready and raring to go, but he keeps them muzzled. The air all has to come from Central America because it can't fly from Florida for appearances' sake. So right from the beginning, the whole thing is just kneecapped, it seems like. But what it does yeah, is it right. brings up all these interesting counterfactual ideas. Like, what if Nixon had actually won in 1960? He came really close, and he had been in on the planning of this before the election. He was all on board for this thing. One wonders, had Nixon been president in April of 61, he would have gone in, and he would have gone in full force. What do you think would have happened then in history in the 60s? Well, if Nixon had been there and they'd gone in full force, the landing itself would have succeeded. Now, the question is, would the landing have led to the overthrow of Castro? And that's a harder one. And then the question then, which I can't answer, is whether Castro's uh, grip on Cuba was so secure at that point that uh, forces would have been sufficient to defeat that army. It wasn't that big a rebel army. It was, what, about 1,600 people. So whether 
there would have been success or failure at that point is a more interesting question. Now, if we were that deeply involved, it's possible there would have been some U.S. direct involvement because it would have been obvious that, that there was originally involvement. There might have been some incident constructed or something like that. I think that Nixon would have been pretty determined. In that case, you could argue that uh, there would never have been a missile crisis, that probably there would not have been considerable action in Africa later. I think that Nixon probably would have been more involved earlier in Vietnam and probably more successfully. I, I would I would credit Nixon with much better foreign policy sense. Now, would Nixon also have, have uh, exhibited the sort of... Uh, nasty personality traits, which became obvious later, I don't know. Those traits were probably exacerbated by anger over the 1960 election. After the debacle of uh, the Bay of Pigs, Norman, um, JFK seems to have been obsessed with Castro. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that affected the rest of his administration. When, when JFK was running, th there's another factor that we've left out, which was that before the... Before under the Eisenhower administration, uh, the army had been sharply reduced. And uh, Eisenhower's view had been that we could not build a big enough army. Uh, the army was big enough uh, when, when Eisenhower came in uh, to get us into trouble but not get us out. Eisenhower focused on Europe. We had, I think at the peak, about 27 divisions. The Russians had something like 175. Uh, Eisenhower's view was that uh, you couldn't buy enough additional army to make much of a difference. When the Kennedy administration was running in 1960, among its advisors was Maxwell Taylor. Uh, Taylor was, I guess, a retired general at that point, uh, although he came back. And uh, the Army's view was very much that he wanted to restore itself. I think that there was a feeling in the administration already, before it came in, that uh, the United States would end up fighting somewhere in Southeast Asia. You see that in comments about why they needed to build the Army back up, which you find in, uh, for example, uh, the State Department papers that have been published. This is not something I dug up in some obscure place. At any rate, when the Bay of Pigs failed, our Kennedy wanted a report written, and Maxwell Taylor was the man. The report trashed the CIA for extremely poor planning. It led to the resignation of the uh, Director of Central Intelligence, Alan Dulles, and it left out any question of whether the President himself had wrecked the operation. In that sense, it was a rather important report because it was necessary to make sure that it came out the right way. Uh, Taylor himself did very well afterwards. I think he became uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And there was a sense already that the administration would be very happy to uh, shade things as necessary. Uh, that you also see that in the campaign where uh, much was made of the supposed missile gap, except it wasn't any. Kennedy was briefed 
with classified information showing that he kept pushing it anyway. There was a, a, an unfortunate um, smell to it. Before being president, as senator, Kennedy had been very interested in the developing insurgency in Southeast Asia. And when he became president, uh, he heard a speech by Khrushchev in which Khrushchev talked about what he called wars of national liberation. And he was very impressed by that. Eisenhower told him that it was nothing new, that uh, he needn't worry about it. But Kennedy would, would not show very good judgments. And worse than that, uh, he brought with him uh, a group of academic experts who really didn't know much. And it shows. Now, McNamara was not an academic, but he fit that team. And the, the idea was that somehow they were taking over from the brainless uh, military types who had dominated the past. The brainless military types turned out not to be all that brainless. And that fight between experience and academic ex expertise continues. So that it's interesting, Norman, you point that out, because the narrative, obviously, you know, the I-95 corridor, the Axela narrative is considerably different than what you've just said with respect to Camelot and the best and the brightest and, you know, all, Bobby and all the gang there who who were the smart ones that were this the beginning of of the boomer generation and all this sort of stuff and what led to the 60s. Um, and it's not generally in pop culture thought that Kennedy was not good at foreign policy to the degree that you're sort of articulating. But I think this article and other facts lay out that, in fact, he was woefully naive you know, with respect to what you're talking about. But to, to double down on Eric's question, specifically after Bay of Pigs, what else did JFK do to try to get back, and that's underselling it, get back at Castro? Oh, uh, the, the most amazing thing was that uh, after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy clearly decided that he absolutely had to get rid of Castro. Or perhaps he decided that initially and uh, he regarded the Bay of Pigs as the, the simplest way to do it and then that failed. In 1976, I think, uh, the CIA was forced to admit that it had been running a series of attempts to kill Castro. And uh, these ran all through the early 1960s until President Kennedy died. Uh, there's certainly speculation that uh, President Kennedy was killed because Castro decided to defend himself. And in fact, LBJ, now, LBJ held that opinion, right? That's what LBJ thought. Oh, the, the most amazing part is that, that, that according to an article in Smithsonian, one of LBJ's first acts on assuming power was to tell the CIA to make sure Castro knew that attempts to kill him would end, that it was over. Johnson clearly believed that the Cubans had killed Kennedy. Now, whether that's true, no one has the faintest idea. Well, I mean, it's the, a great... The whole story of the assassinations is morass. Yeah, obviously, yes. It's the stuff of Oliver 
Stone films. Um, and, yeah. you know, I mean, this is the Oswald connection with the Soviets and the obviously Cuba being a Soviet satellite, as it were. You know, as you mentioned, Khrushchev needed Cuba as the launch pad for his weapons because they didn't have the long-range ICBM capability like the U.S. Well, he, he, he did in the sense that if you look back, it made a lot of sense. But I don't think that Khrushchev supported Castro in the first place thinking it was going to be missile-based. Uh, what happens with Khrushchev is interesting. Khrushchev is trying to build a force of long-range ballistic missiles. And it seemed to many Americans that Khrushchev was ahead of us in doing such things. In February 1962, which means about a little less than a year after the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev attends a meeting in the Soviet Union in which he's told that their intercontinental missile program is not working. They're just unable to build the long-range missiles they want. And... Then he decides to put missiles in Cuba. If you think about it, in his mind, Cuba becomes very useful at that point. The Bay of Pigs becomes an excuse to demand that the missiles go in. Now, when the missile crisis boils and Khrushchev is forced to withdraw the missiles, then uh, Castro learns a valuable lesson, which is not much publicized, which is that he can be sold out. And... Uh, I would bet that his enthusiasm for supporting revolution in Africa is a way of making it impossible for the Soviets to sell him out in the future. That's much later. That, that's more than 10 years later. But that has real consequences. The, the failure in the Bay of Pigs uh, convinces Castro that the United States is, is after him and that the Russians are his only chance of staying in business. And that makes it impossible for him to disagree when Khrushchev offers him uh, the chance to be a Russian missile base. So no Bay of Pigs at all, which is difficult to imagine. Castro feels more comfortable. I don't know. That's another possibility, but it's very unlikely. Once the Bay of Pigs fails, the, the missile crisis is sort of in the cards. And feeding it, is uh, Khrushchev's evaluation of, of Kennedy as a, a kid who doesn't really know what he's doing. So let, let's get in the weeds a little bit with the actual Bay of Pigs, since that's the focus of, of this article, because I, I think a lot of our listeners probably have no idea what the Bay of Pigs I itself is. So there's a great graphic uh, on one of the pages of the article that, that shows the area... Uh, in, in play here. And as Eric mentioned, there was no way that there was going to be air power or any direct force coming from the United States to Cuba. Second Fleet was present right. with uh, a complement of, uh, you know, a handful of ships in the USS Essex. They trained in Guatemala. And then there was a CIA secured airstrip and some docks in Nicaragua. So walk right. us through the TikTok, if you would, Norman, starting on the 17th uh, of April until the disaster itself. What happened was that the, the rebels were supposed to be supported by E-26s, those are World War II bombers, which were flying out of Nicaragua. And there's a question of what air support means. When the rebels were landed on that beach, 
uh, the Cubans had fighters inland. And air superiority over a beach means being there continuously. This actually has relevance for what you think about aircraft carriers. Being there continuously doesn't mean that you fly out of, say, Nicaragua, you spend, say, half hour over the beach and then you leave because you're out of fuel. It means that you can keep coming back to keep continuous presence near there so that when their fighters turn up, you can shoot them down. That was a detail that apparently did not come up when the when the operation was moved. The only way to have continuous air support over the beach was to have a lot of airplanes close by. That's called an aircraft carrier. And that ability to maintain continuous air support actually is one of the reasons that aircraft carriers are still rather important. It's easy to forget. When, when you just look at the, the data on, say, B-26, the Bay of Pigs is well within their range. But that doesn't tell you how long it can spend. The other thing is that I imagine that the theory was the B-26s would, would knock out the uh, Cuban Air Force at its bases, but the record of doing that is very poor. Uh, didn't work very well with much larger numbers of airplanes during World War II. There's this sidebar in the article of by William Smoot, who was, uh, Eric, was he a midshipman or was he a junior officer during the Bay of Pigs? He was a, a junior officer, and he was not in the Navy for long, but um, we were fortunate to capture his oral history in the Naval Institute oral history program. So here's it's a blow-by-blow -blow account uh, of a sailor who's offshore there watching all this happen. And I wish we'd had more room because... The whole oral history is about his Bay of Pigs experience, and it's all very interesting. This is just a sample. Yeah, so he's he's on he's on a ship just offshore. He can see the landing, but Norman, the reason I bring it up is because he he notices there are unmarked F eight Crusaders. So to me, that means right. you know maybe that's RF eights that are doing reconnaissance because um, they're not mm -hmm. dropping ordnance or, or, or strafing the beach or doing any sort of close air support. And then you mentioned the B-26s. So those were those loners to uh, uh, another nation? Those weren't American airplanes, right? No, they were. Uh, they had been bought by uh, the CIA. Uh, nobody else officially owned them. There, there were several operations in which B-26s were used. I think the CIA also used them in an unsuccessful operation in Indonesia. It was a fast... Uh, effective bomber, entered service late in World War II, and uh, there were a lot of them left. Those B-26s were CIA airplanes. They didn't belong to oh, yes. Nicaragua or Guatemala or Honduras. Those were, those oh, were no, no, CIA no. They assets. Were, they, were, they were owned by the CIA. And, and we did that so we could have sort of plausible deniability uh, as to yes. U.S. involvement. I, it's, it's all sort of comic. Uh, as Eisenhower put it, uh, anything that happens like this will be blamed anyway. So it was ludicrous. Kennedy imagined somehow that people would not realize that the United States had financed this thing. And it, it was it was as though when the Soviets financed things, we, we automatically blamed them. What made him think that when we did it, we wouldn't be blamed? So 
there's some B-26 sorties, there's some F-8s raging up and down the beach for short amounts of time, not seemingly involved at all, didn't drop any ordnance. Right. Uh, you know, again, we believe that that's probably an intel operation. What we know from William Smoot's account is suddenly they get this, uh, and they're hearing voices from people on the beach like, hey, where's the air cover? You know, we're, we're under oh, yeah. fire here. And, and suddenly they get, long story short, they get the order, no air cover is coming. And that's the last oh, William Smoot. Yeah, they're dead, that, right? They're captured. They they're all dead. Right. And there's enormous resentment uh, among Cubans who are related to them, Cubans who felt that they had a shot at getting back to Cuba. Um, the, the, resonation, the resonance of it is felt afterwards in, Cuba, in the Florida politics. Well, there's a picture in the article of some Cuban soldiers parading a CIA caseworker. I guess that's what you'd call him. He's dressed in camis um, after the failed invasion. And so do we know at all what happened to the Americans who were involved in this operation? Were they ever seen again? Were they imprisoned? Oh, I think everybody, everybody came back afterwards eventually. Uh, I know that the Cubans were, were released eventually. Really? And that's surprising to me. That all of the Cuban, the Cuban rebels eventually were released. I don't think anyone was shot. Okay. Well, that's, Uh, that's kind of a good news story. I mean, that's the question that comes up as you're seeing this guy being paraded through the streets. You know, he's actually, you can see he's wearing a wedding ring. You're like, wow, what would it be like to be him in that moment? You know, The, the astounding thing with the CIA was, their attempts again and again to kill him in what in retrospect looked like ludicrous ways. It, it sounded as though they just never, never understood what they were doing. And, oh, and, and by the way, uh, there were claims that uh, Kennedy expected to uh, mount an invasion of Cuba sometime in 63 or 64. So obviously that was uh, interrupted by the assassination of JFK. It's right. it's interesting what you say that one of LBJ's first edicts to the CIA is tell Castro we're going to stop attempts to assassinate him. You know, please relay that to him. That that's uh, an interesting missive that he, he had to deliver. Um, so how did this net out? It it sort of seems like we solidified Castro's position by the Bay of Pigs and maybe accelerated his rise uh, to international prominence? I, I don't know about his rise to prominence directly out of the Bay of Pigs. I think that what happened was that uh, the Bay of Pigs solidified his, uh, his relationship with the Russians, and that led indirectly to all sorts of extremely unfortunate consequences like, for example, the missile crisis. But the Russians were emboldened by other things. If you look at the, the Berlin Wall crisis, where had we objected more strenuously at the start, the thing might have unwound. If you look at the missile crisis, where Kennedy's people rejected reports of Russian missile construction, when it might have been stopped, because of fear of uh, unfortunate consequences in the 1962 elections, you see again and again a pattern of dithering. Listening to Stevenson, who was his UN ambassador, because he liked to look good, but 
he was the one who wanted Castro overthrown from the, the beginning. That's not going to look good. There was an unwillingness to face the unpleasantness that, that comes with being president. It carries a lot of extremely nasty responsibilities. Well, and as you point out, then, I mean, ultimately, while you're trying to avoid the unpleasantness, it nets out as even more unpleasant than had you addressed yeah. it straight on. Oh, absolutely. But, but that's a very common lesson of life. Very often, you have to do something that you don't feel like doing, because if you, if you don't do anything, it'll get worse. Yeah, I just think history has been good to JFK, you know, I think in, in sort of general well, terms. The, the, the glamour and and then also there's a sense of, well, uh, he died for our sins or something of that sort. So the article is called Debacle at Bahia de Cochinos, which is sounds better than Bay of Pigs. Uh, oh, yes. It's much more glamorous. The author is Norman Friedman, our good friend Norman Friedman. Norman, thank you for spending a little bit of time with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Eric, as always, it's great to have you on the program. Here, here. Thanks, Ward. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>